Amen. Remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read our scripture passage that our sermon will be based on now. It's going to be found in Acts chapter 21, verses 17 through 22. Let's read it together. Then when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And if you would open your Bibles to that passage, Acts chapter 21. And we will begin in verse 17, but before we do so, let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning, that he would use this time in his word to sanctify his people, to call sinners to repentance. Let's also pray for Andy Walkley. Andy will be having two back surgeries in the next uh, few days. First one will be this week, August 4th, and then the one following on August the 9th. Pray for Andy to regain feeling and strength in his left leg as a result of this surgery. And the first surgery will determine how invasive the second one will be. So let's pray for Andy and Marianne as Andy prepares for this surgery. Let's pray. Our God, we've come before you. We've read your scripture. We've sung songs that have reminded us about your attributes and your grace. And Lord, we've heard a wonderful testimony of that grace in your in Audra's life. Father, thank you for your working. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit, which accomplishes all things for the purpose of your glory. Thank you for gathering your people once again this morning. Every breath we give is due to that grace. It's because of your mercy upon us. But Lord, we're so thankful that we have full forgiveness in Jesus' name, that those of us who are in Christ stand righteous before him, And that there is no condemnation that awaits us because of what you have done in us and for us through the finished work of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins and has been raised to life from the dead. Thank you, Lord, for the victory we have in Christ. We also pray for Andy this morning and the surgeries that are to come. We pray for wisdom for the doctors. We pray that you would guide their hands. And Lord, we pray that that surgery will be successful and Andy will find healing. Father, we just commit him to you as and Marianne in the days ahead. And Lord, just be merciful and gracious to them. Thank you for your word. Help us now as we open it and feast upon it. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 21. We've been going through the book of Acts now for quite a while. Last week, we saw how Paul was discouraged from going to Jerusalem. He's concluded his third missionary journey, 
And he's on his way back to Jerusalem, hoping to arrive by the day of Pentecost. And he's been discouraged by his friends because of what is awaiting him there in Jerusalem. The Lord had given through the Holy Spirit a prophecy that Paul would be imprisoned and afflicted once he got there. And so his friends lovingly told Paul, we can't let you go there. You need to go somewhere else. And we talked about how emotions can hijack our interpretation of what the Bible says. And we must let the word of God speak for what it is and not add emotional interpretation and make excuses for it. And of course, his friends meant well, but the Lord, Paul knew what the word of the Lord was and he was going to go and even was willing to suffer shame for the name of Jesus Christ. So they part ways and they make their way to Jerusalem. Look at verse 17. Luke writes, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the, th- the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. I just love how that's worded, by the way. Paul is not arriving in Jerusalem with a bragamony. You know what a bragamony is? It's something that you are so thankful that God has done through you, but really you're taking all the credit for it. You know, um, Paul does not do that. He relates one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles and is giving the glory to God. He's showing the goodness of God and saving the Gentiles all across the Roman Empire from Corinth to Ephesus, uh, all over the place in Asia. James here, the James that's mentioned, is the half-brother of Jesus. Not James the brother of John, but James the brother of Jesus. If you remember that James, during Jesus' ministry, did not believe in him. But he did come to faith after the resurrection. And so James is now actually one of the main elders at the church of Jerusalem. And elders, as we, as we have seen repeatedly through the book of Acts, is a biblical word for pastor, the office of pastor. And again, they are gathered with the elders. There's never just one elder in a New Testament church, but Always a multiplicity, a plurality of elders called the shepherd God's people. And so Paul's given a report. He gets there. He's telling them about the things that God has done among the Gentiles. And these things would have included, I'm sure, the things that Luke has already recorded for us in the book of Acts and so much more. The people of God are not just an ethnic group within the bounds of the Holy Land. This is what is new in this time period. Things that the church and the Jewish Christians and the Gentiles are wrestling with. The people of God are now all those who put their faith in a resurrected Savior. That Savior who was the promised Messiah who was to come. He did come and he did accomplish all that God the Father had sent him to do. And God had given him as a sacrifice And it crushed him on the cross and had given him his wrath on behalf of sinners. And then God gloriously raised him from the dead. And the people of God are all those who put their faith in God's man, in God's Messiah. This is what's happening here in the book of Acts. And so Paul is giving them this story. That it's just not our Jewish brothers that are 
repenting and turning to God, but it's Gentiles, and the Gentiles are leaving their idols behind. They're going to Christ for his salvation and rule. He wanted to encourage these Gentiles as well. Because another major controversy in this day, as we've seen in the book of Acts, was what? The Jewish Christians were struggling. They were so confused about how someone becomes a Christian if they're not Jewish. So when the Gentiles started believing, they started saying, well, yes, you have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to be circumcised. You also have to observe all of these feasts and festivals and ceremonies that we do. And until you do that, you cannot be a Christian. This is the big debate. And if you go back to Acts 15, which we did many, many months ago, you would see the Jerusalem Council made a a ruling there that said, no, that Gentiles are not bound by the law in order to become a Christian. But there's some things they encouraged them to do. And so Paul took that letter and he went throughout all the empire and encouraged these churches. He's coming back and he's given a report. This is what God has done. This is what I've reported to the Gentiles. God is doing a great work there. Look at verse 20. How do the elders respond to Paul's report? And when they heard it, they glorified God. They glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, How many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They are all zealous for the law. And they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. (laughs) The elders are saying, praise God, Paul. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your faithfulness. God is so good to save the Gentiles. There's something we got to tell you about. God has also saved thousands of Jewish people here as well. And they are all zealous for the law. The word zealous there means enthusiastic loyalty. They're loyal to God's law enthusiastically. They defend it. They promote it. They live by it. They're zealous for the law. They're loyal enthusiasts. There's a problem, though, because there's been a rumor about you, Paul, and it's upsetting these Jewish believers. And what they are believing now about you is that you're going throughout the world not just telling Gentiles, oh, you don't need to be circumcised and follow all those rules and you need to be, you you need to like, you know, stop being a Jew. He's now telling the Jews that. That was not true. That's what we call today fake news, right? We got a problem, Paul, because they will know that you're here and they are very angry at you. Now, what's interesting here is when we go, Paul is expecting to come back and to be imprisoned and to be afflicted, and he's probably thinking it's the Romans who are going to do it. But Revelation, it will be these so-called Jewish believers in Jerusalem 
who are angry at Paul, who are believing a lie and a rumor about Paul. And that lie was, he's telling the Jews outside Jerusalem, stop being Jewish. Circumcision, ah, feasts, festivals, don't worry about it. What is the truth, though? The truth is that Paul was telling the Gentiles that they don't have to observe the law to be saved. He was telling the Gentiles that Jesus plus circumcision was of no value, that the way to be saved was to believe in Jesus alone, and there was nothing else required to be forgiven but faith in him. He was also telling the Jews the same thing. He was also telling the Jews the same thing. But he wasn't telling the Jews to stop observing their feasts and festivals and circumcision. But he was telling the Jews, circumcision is no way to be saved. So if you're trusting in your circumcision, then you've got a problem. But if you want to keep circumcising your kids according to the God's law and covenant as a reminder of what was to come, then go for it. But don't force our Gentile brothers, and brothers to do this. Don't force our, 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 our Gentile sisters to observe feasts and festivals according to your rules. That's not what God has required. If you want to keep doing it, do it. By all means. But don't make that a condition to being a Christian. And so there's that lie. The lie that I'm sure the evil one is using to bring about the persecution of Paul, the imprisonment of Paul, the, to try to stop the gospel that Paul was preaching. And this is such a lie because we have at least two examples already in the book of Acts where this is not true. For example, in Acts chapter 16, we won't turn there, but if you will remember, Paul had Timothy, who was a Gentile, circumcised. So as not to offend unnecessarily the Jews he was witnessing to. Paul wasn't against circumcision. This is why he tells the Corinthians, I've become all men. I've become all things to all people so that I might win some. Paul doesn't compromise the truth of the gospel, but he's not going to be unnecessarily offensive. Also in Acts chapter 18, we see that Paul takes a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow was a very Jewish custom. So in, in Acts 16 and Acts 18, we see Paul continue the customs of the law himself. So it's an absolute lie that he's telling everyone, including Jewish believers scattered around the world, to stop. Now, I had planned to go through verse 38 today. But that's not happening. <laughs> I, I was studying and, and preparing for this. And I kept wrestling with this idea of the law of God. And, and I, I'm just going to stop here and, and talk about God's law. Because it is so important. It is so important for how you live your life. And there are skewed views on both ends. And some of you in here might have skewed views about the law of God. And this is what the confusion is happening in Jerusalem at this time. These Jewish believers are legalistic. We'll talk about that in a minute. 
They're legalistic. They're sticking to the law. They're adding to it. They're making it a requirement. But first, let's just talk about what is the law of God? Because this is something earlier in my life I had confused greatly, and it could have led to some big trouble greatly in my life, really on both spectrums. So what is the law of God? The law of God is comprised of 613 commandments. Now you're saying, wait, 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 I only know about 10. Well, yes, the 10 commandments are part of the 613, but there's a whole lot more than just 10. Yeah, 613 commandments comprise the law of God. So when the Jewish believers say Paul is telling others to forsake Moses, this is what they're talking about. Why? Because the law of God is found in what Moses wrote, the first five books of the Bible. The Jews call that the Torah. The Hebrew word Torah is the word law. So when they say that he's teaching Jews to forsake Moses or to forsake the law, that's what they're talking about, the things that Moses wrote. We know God gave Moses the law, the Ten Commandments, the covenant with Israel that Israel was to live by, and and it was supposed to be a way to show them that they could not obey God satisfactory and sufficiently. And it was to draw them to a place of faith in God, not as a means to an end. In today's world, there are so many differing beliefs about God's law. And this is why I'm stopping here. So many false teachers confuse the law of God and almost make it into a license to sin. And this is what I want to make sure as as your pastor, that we have a good and healthy understanding of what the law of God requires of us as believers. As believers. What you think of God's law matters. Not just how you see your life, but also how you see the world. So here's a question I want to ask. Is the law good? Or is the law bad? Now, The way you answer that question might reveal what you believe about God's law. Okay, so let's just just go through this. And so important because the most common people to abuse the law of God are, we know, is the Pharisees. Right? The Pharisees held to their tradition. They added to the Torah. They added to the law and then heaped those burdens upon people. To say, if you want to be on God's good side, if you want to be holy, then you have to do all these extra things. That's not good. And this is what Paul was warning about throughout his ministry. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he encourages Timothy saying this, verse 6, certain persons, by swerving from these, he's talking about sound doctrine, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if, 
And here's the condition. Is the law good? If one uses it lawfully. There's a way to approach the law of God and abuse it. There's a way to use the law of God to your detriment. And there's a way to use God's law for his glory. And so Paul warned this. He warned to the the Galatians. Remember the Galatians were seduced by the Judaizers. Those are some of the people saying you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And Paul called them out. And Peter who was going along with their nonsense. And not calling out and standing firm. So you have one side of people who are legalist. What's a legalist? Legalists are those who use God's law as a way of salvation. Or those who would add to God's law or burden people with it. They tell people that the law is good, but then weigh them down with burdens too heavy to carry. This is what Jesus said of the Pharisees. So was Paul a legalist? No, of course not. So if Paul wasn't a legalist, then what is he? Well, what they are accusing him of is not legalism. What these Jewish believers are accusing him is something called, and I have it on the screen for you, so let's put that up now. They are accusing him of being an antinomian. I put it on there because I know you're saying, how do you spell that? What does that mean? Now, this is not some seminary word. This is a word you need to know because it will help you spot false teachers. Okay? What does antinomian mean? Well, we know, we know the word anti means what? Against. And nomos mean, is the Greek word for law. So if a legalist is for the law, an antinomian is what? Against the law. Right? They're against the law. They're opposed to the law. They just live by grace. Live any way you want. You are free in Jesus You don't need God's law anymore. Just go ahead and sin. You could always ask God to forgive you later. Essentially, they're telling people that God's law is bad. Their God's law is bad. There are lots of people saying that today. Be very careful who you read, who you listen to, who you follow. I have a list of false teachers out in the Welcome Center if you're If you're new here today or didn't get that a couple weeks ago, pick that up. So they're saying that essentially he's an antinomian. Why? Because he's teaching these Jews to forsake the law. Was that true? Of course not. Paul wasn't asking them to forsake God's law or to give up on Moses. He was against using the law as a way to be saved. By your obedience to it. People do this in different ways. Without even knowing it. If someone thinks that they could work their way to heaven. They are a legalist. If I'm just good enough. If I don't lie as much as the other guy. If, if I don't cheat on my wife. If I don't covet. If I don't murder. right? If I don't do all those things. And I'm a good person, and Audra mentioned that in her testimony, right? That there is no good people. 
Right? There is no such thing as a good person. Why? Because we're all born sinners, deserving of God's judgment and wrath. There was only one good person that ever lived, and his name is Jesus. And they killed him. So you have antinomians, and this is what they're accusing Paul of. You're telling people to forsake the law. Really what they are are legalists. Who are trying to use God's law as a way to be saved. So if Paul wasn't a legalist, nor an antinomian, see, because they're believing a lie about him, then what is he? Well, I don't think there's a really a word to describe him except Bible-believing, gospel-centered. Uh, or just maybe he was correct. Yeah, I like that one. Paul was just correct. You see, a correct and biblical view of God's law comes from having an understanding of the balance between law and gospel. Law and gospel. Martin Luther once said this, It is the law that gives the diagnosis. It is the gospel that gives the cure. You see, legalists only want the diagnosis without the cure. Tell me I am sick, doctor, and I will cure myself by my own effort. The antinomian only wants to cure without the diagnosis. But how can you have the cure without knowing what's wrong with you? You've got to know and have God's law so you know where you stand before God and why you need to be cured. For example, how can anyone be found unless they know they're lost? How can anyone be made well unless they're sick? A legalism just wants to focus on self-effort to help cure oneself without the cure that is available by being obedient to a set of rules. Antinomians like, eh, who needs a diagnosis? We're good. Just give me the good stuff. It doesn't matter what the diagnosis says. So then we must have, I cannot tell you how this is such a mountain in your Christian life. If you get a balance of law and gospel in your life, things will begin to make a whole lot more sense. You have to have a balance of law and gospel. You can't live your life with the law and expect to satisfy God. And you can't live your life apart from the law and expect to satisfy God. Yeah, I said those two things that seem contradictory. What do I mean by that? When we come to the law of God, what is it designed to show me? Right? Let's just start with the Ten Commandments. Right? Do not worship any other God. Okay? Number two, don't make graven images. Idolatry. Well, have I ever worshipped someone else? Yeah. The biggest person I worship is me. I'm my own biggest idol. Have I had my attention diverted to worship God in ways he's not designed? Yes. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Have I ever taken God's name in vain? Yes. 
Not just by my lips, but by my life. Have I ever violated the Sabbath? Yes. Okay, wow. Okay, we keep going down the line here. And you keep going down God's law. And what do you find? I'm guilty. I'm a coveter. I'm a liar. The law is given by God so that you can see that you need him. That you're sick. That you're desperate. More than that, you are dead in your sin. That's the diagnosis. Because here's the promise of the law. Do this, and God says, you will live. The problem is, no, not a one of us does it. And therefore what? We all die. Why do you go to funerals? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yeah. When I come to the law, I must see that I am a sinner who deserves judgment and wrath from God. But when I come to the gospel, what must I see? I have a Savior who took my judgment and wrath given by God. I'm a sinner who is guilty, but the gospel tells me I have a Savior who was guilty for me. Legalism, moralism, what it drives you to do is this. Well, you just need to be a better person. That's what's wrong with you. You just need to be a better person. So you need to lie less and, you know, don't, don't lust so much and Hey, try not to kill people, all right? Can, I mean, can, we, can we at least get, get agree on that? Just, just maybe try to improve your life, right? This is what God said you ought not to do, so legalism says just make your life better in that way. Or antinomianism says, ah, who cares about that? Just live your life. God loves you anyway. No. A proper balance of law and gospel says, yeah, <laughs> I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. My problem is not self-improvement. My problem is that I am dead and in need of a resurrection. My problem is that I am lost and on my way to hell. But the gospel tells me that I have a Savior who loved me and gave himself for me so that I could stand righteous before him. It's not live any way you want. It's not try to be better. It's this is the truth of God. The prescription the doctor gives after giving the diagnosis and the cure must be to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Period. And then because I'm a believer, I don't obey God in order for him to love me. And I think that's where a lot of us are, to be honest with you, in our lives. Oh, I think God's mad at me. I think God is angry with me. So I'm going to come to church today so he doesn't feel as angry with me. Oh, I can't, I can't believe I did that sin again. What's wrong with me? Okay, I, I'm, just, I, I'm, I'm going to give a little extra tithe this morning so that, so that God is not so angry with me. And so by your efforts... You may believe that you're saved by grace through faith, but the way you live 
is legalistic. You live in a way to make God happy by your effort because you know what his law has said. But a proper balance of law and gospel says, there's nothing I can do. If God is going to be satisfied with me, it's because of the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. I'll never forget when I was a, a teenager and we, our youth group was, went door to door and passing out flyers and stuff like that. I was very legalistic back in those days. I remember it started to lightning and thunder and pour. And we were like a couple blocks away from the church. And all those other silly, you know, non-holy spiritual teenagers, they ran back to the church for cover and to stay dry. But where's Dan Sardinas? I keep going on. And I remember thinking, God is smiling on me. He's disappointed in those jokers. Why? You see, I mean, I'm saved by grace through faith. I know I, that's not the way to, I'm saved. But the way I lived, oh, confused the fire out of me. Is the law of God good? Yes, it most certainly is. Yes, it so most certainly is. But the Jewish believers in Jerusalem are saying and adding burdens. Yes, you have to believe, but, but, but you have to keep doing this. This is why Paul tells Timothy in 1.9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Yeah, the law of God is there to tell the lost people, the lawless, the disobedient. For what? So that they can know that they have sinned against God. So they must repent. The law is not given so that you can make yourself better. Because that's impossible. The only way you become better is not in your effort or in your righteousness. But how? In Jesus Christ alone. Because let me tell you what happened. There's not been a single person who has ever kept 613 commandments. I mean, you can look far and wide, deep, go through the list. Not a single person has ever kept 613 commandments perfectly. In fact, the Bible says if you break one, you break them all. So if you just do one, you're guilty of them all. But there is one, and his name is Jesus. And he came and he lived a life that pleased God by being obedient to God's law. And when we place our faith in him, God declares us justified. And he counts us as righteous as Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is the law giver, is also the law keeper. So that when I come to Jesus, when I repent of my sin, when I come to him for help, and living a godly life. I come to him and not saying, give me a makeover. 
But Lord, I stand condemned, but I know that you have set me free by your blood, by my faith in you and your gospel. I live now in your righteousness. Jesus, I didn't obey my parents all the time, but I know you did. Jesus, I know you never lied, that that you never lied, lied, but I did. I coveted, Lord, but I know you never did. I have done, I've committed idolatry again and again. But Jesus, I know you have never done so. So my life is not found in me being better. But law and gospel, this is what God requires. Gospel, this is what Jesus has accomplished. So when you come, you don't have to beat yourself up. Why? Because the law was never meant to do that for you believers. The law is our schoolmaster showing you that you have a good God who has accomplished everything he requires in the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul says in verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This is what I understand. The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. Then he gives a whole list in accordance with the gospel. Yeah, law and gospel. Law and gospel. Why does the law matter? It shows us the character of God. It shows us a God who's glorious and holy. It shows us who he is and what he cares about. It shows us the authority of God. It shows us that God is God and he sets the standard. He sets the rules. And by those rules, we know what is right and wrong. Without God's law, we don't even know what sin is. We don't even know what is good or right or holy. God's law also gives us the goodness of God. That there is justice to be found in God's law. That God cares about justice for those who have been abused or the oppressed. And he sets up his law to bring justice to the oppressed and punish the evildoer. And that's real justice, by the way. And if you have to add an adjective to justice, it's no longer justice, people have said. Like social justice. There's only one kind of justice, and God tells you what is just. Period. So yeah, the law gives us the diagnosis. It's like a mirror that exposes our flaws. It reveals what's wrong with us and why we need help. It's like a speed limit sign, which tells us what the speed limit is on a certain road. If we didn't have that sign, we wouldn't know what the law was. But once we know what that law is, it's 35 miles an hour. You go 36, you're breaking the law. And you could be in trouble with the law. You could be pulled over and get a ticket. That speed limit sign is a good equivalent to God's law. It tells you the truth. It tells you what's required. If you go beyond that, you're in trouble. And what is the cure for this law? It's the gospel. It's only the gospel of Jesus Christ. The law is good, Paul says, if it is used lawfully. So you could take the law of God and abuse it. If you take the law of God by itself, what do you have? I have a bunch of requirements that I could never live up to. That's the pressing. If you just take the gospel with no law, and by the way, a lot of people do this, just say a prayer and you're going to go to heaven. There's no mention of sin or you're a sinner or you have to repent. 
or anything. Just repeat these magic words and you're going to heaven. That's not the gospel. If you just give the gospel, God loves you and have a, and it's in the name of a gospel, so-called gospel, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Fill out this card and you, you, you'll be one of his. That's not the gospel. Why? Because without the law, you don't know why you need the gospel. All you've been given is the cure with no diagnosis. Am I making sense? And yet we have countless of preachers and pastors and Bible teachers. All they're trying to do in the name of numbers is to get people to raise their hands or to walk an aisle. To say that they've had a thousand people. It happens every Easter. I'm on Twitter. I know it's a cesspool of whatever. I don't know why I do that to myself. But it happens all the time. And then I'm like, there's a thousand people saved this week. Where, where are they next week? They're nowhere. Why? Because without law, telling those people who are believing, the, who need the cure of the gospel, you need the law to tell you that you need a savior. Law and gospel. So without, the, without the law, you have an incomplete gospel. Why did Jesus have to die? Why do I have to believe? If I don't have the law, I don't know any of that. I don't know what the gospel requires. And with the law, all I have is the bad news. All I have is I'm worthless. And there's nothing I can do to, to help it. But with the gospel, the gospel fills in all the answers and the holes that the law leaves behind. Because they were never meant to be separate. They were meant to go together to show the sinner what God requires and what God has accomplished. Let's wrap this up. Oh, I have a lot more to say, but... The law of God can be divided into three categories, really quickly. You have the Ten Commandments, which is the moral law. You have the ceremonial law, that's the priestly and temple duties, sacrificial system. And you have the civil law. This is how Israel was to govern themselves. That's how you get 613. The moral, which is Ten Commandments, ceremonial, and civil And Jesus has accomplished all of them. To release you from your burden of sin when you place your faith in him. In the Ten Commandments, Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed all ten. And the ceremonial law that God gave the priests and to Israel, this is how you make sacrifices. This is how the priests are to do this and how to dress and how to do this and blah, blah, blah. All that stuff, read it, Leviticus. Jesus Christ fulfills all the ceremonial law. How? He is the Lamb of God which was slain. And he's not only the Lamb of God, but he's also our high priest which stands in our behalf. Amen? And all the requirements of the ceremonial law have been fulfilled. So we don't have to sacrifice lambs anymore. There's no need for a temple in Jerusalem anymore. Why? Because the ceremonial law has been closed. And now the purpose of it is to show us who the Savior is and what he's done. The civil law given to Israel... Israel had a lot of laws as a nation God gave them. 
Every single one, Jesus Christ has fulfilled. As the true Israel, the perfect Israel, the Israel that Israel could never be, the 12 tribes failed repeatedly. God judged them. But here comes the true Israel in the name of Jesus, the Prince of God, the Son of God. By the way, that's what Israel means, Son of God, the Prince of God. Here's the Son of God, Jesus coming, and he creates a new people, not just of ethnic people from a certain land, but from all tribes and tongues and nations. He's created a new people. He's created them a new law. He's made them a royal priesthood. And so now the civil law is closed. It's, there's principles we could use to see God's goodness and character. And we won't get into that today. But the law of God is good if used lawfully. And how do you use it lawfully? By balancing it with the gospel. So that we could say such things as 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That's the gospel, that Jesus came and he fulfilled the law of God for lawbreakers like you and me, showing us mercy and patience and kindness. And Paul even says, perfect patience. Because to put up with a scoundrel like Paul, God needed perfect patience. And by the way, we can include ourselves in there too. You need perfect patience from God. Because anyone else would have given up on you. Anyone else would have said, see you later. But God, for his glory, called the people to himself, displaying his perfect patience to them so that they would believe in him for eternal life. And then Paul worships in verse 17, to the king of the ages. Immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I mean, what else do we, do we reply to that? But thank you, God. Thank you, God. So we have Jerusalem Christians that are so confused about the law. They, 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 Luke says they're believers, so I, I'm assuming they're, they're in Christ. They have the law, they have the gospel, but they don't know how they work together. And you have them accusing Paul of being antinomian, which is not true. But antinomians exist. You find them anywhere. Lots of churches in Bradenton don't go very far. You cannot give the gospel without the law. You cannot give the law without the gospel. And now I implore you, those who are here, or those who may be listening online, that God has required something of you. And that is obedience. And the truth is, is that you could never obey enough. You could live a thousand lifetimes and never obey enough. That's okay. Because the gospel says there's been one sent for you who has. 
and he did it in one lifetime. And he's perfectly fulfilled everything completely. So that when you, a guilty sinner underneath God's law, places their faith in Jesus Christ, his righteousness gets added to yours as if you were the law keeper as well. That is nothing but grace. That is nothing but grace. And yes, your grace still amazes me. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Help us to understand this balance of law and gospel. Can't give the gospel without the law. We can't give the law without the gospel. They're there to show us a diagnosis and a cure. Lord, may those struggling with antinomianism and not even knowing it repent and see what Jesus Christ has done for them and why the law of God matters. For those struggling with legalism who may not even know it, may you see that they are, that may, may you show them that there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ, that you love them in Christ perfectly. And there's nothing they can do to make you love them any more or any less. This is what the gospel tells us. Oh, Lord, your law is good. It tells us your holiness and your, God, your character and your standard of righteousness. But your gospel is good too. We love to focus on the gospel without the law. Help us, God. Uh, help us to know you, to walk with you, to know your word more. You know every heart in here where they need to be sanctified. You know every heart in here who needs to be saved. Father, I pray that they would hear the doctor. Give the diagnosis. And that they would know what the cure is. Trust in Jesus Christ alone. In your name we pray. Amen.